0: The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program.
1: Welcome in to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management. For the next hour, we will be talking about working toward financial independence. Some people call it that. Others call it retirement. There are a lot of different ways to get there, and I highly recommend that you consider the possibility of sitting for the free no obligation consultation that Aptus offers you so that you can get to know them. They can get to know you. You can discuss investing. And the concepts around investing. We have spent a lot of time here on The Answer and on this show talking about rate hikes from the Fed, the effort to get inflation under control, the volatility that introduces to the market. We will probably talk about a lot of those concepts today as they fold into our subjects. Aptus is located in Lewis Center, just off Route 750. Not far from the 23270 interchange, and you can set up that free no obligation consultation by calling their office at Aptus Wealth Management, 614-917-1040. 614-917-1040. Their web address is AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. And Josh, when we start the show, we always talk about current events. We didn't have a Fed meeting this week. We didn't have a new inflation number. But we did have, um, it looked to me like a stock market that didn't like something. I'm not sure. Was there anything in particular that the stock market was reacting to? Well,
2: every time we talk about the stock market, we're hypothesizing a little bit. But it at least appears, you know, that China released some information about their exports and their unemployment this week. And, you know, we tend to look at China, at least in today's market, as one of the hugest manufacturers in the world. So when they have bad numbers, uh, you know, it's the pebble in the pond that, ripple effects out mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. So I think there's some general concern, I don't think that's the only thing. I think there's still a strong belief that the Fed is going to remain hawkish in its approach to interest rates, um, which adds to uncertainty. There's still a serious amount of concern, although easing, uh, that are we going to land softly yeah, as a thread result the needle. Of, right. of this inflation? And then when you, you know, if you think of it as the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, add just a little bit of sprinkles of other bad news and it can have a, have a catastrophic effect. Now, whether that's a very short-term blip in the radar or long-term is yet to be seen. I don't think that in and of itself is going to throw us into a recession by any means.
1: Do you find that as you assess all the data that you look at uh, on a daily basis in order to service your clients, there's a phrase out there, the global economy. And then the thought has been that you know America kind of drives the global economy. Uh, then we had the pandemic. And everything shut down. We had supply chain, this, that, and the other residual effects of that. Do you, when you hear the term global economy, feel like we have a global economy, or is the U.S. still set the pace, or have we ceded that to China or somebody else?
2: Well, there's no question that we're in a global economy, and if you don't believe that, just reference back to COVID. I mean, when you looked at uh, when we had the supply chain disrupted even subtly, it caused tremendous problems. Uh, I think we learned a lot of lessons during COVID. You know, we don't have as much uh dependability on U.S. manufacturing for things like drugs. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you need, it seems like you need, you need insulin, you need any sort of drug, you need China to some Mm -hmm. capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that China is without its own issues as well. They have a little bit of a population problem stemming from the result of their, you know, staunch policy on only allowing people to have one child, uh, you know, their rapid expansion of cities, which, you know, you hear about things like ghost cities. Uh, but you know, if we continue down this path uh, of, you know, you asked if we we're a global economy, we certainly are. But I think sometimes we can exacerbate that by trying to make things way more complicated than they need to be. For example, we say, well, we're smarter than the average bear. So if we're in a global economy or what's going to happen with AI or what's going to happen here, or what's going to happen there? and We try and become prognosticators or, you know, the, uh, we try and become, you know, these like forecasters of what's going to be the next NVIDIA, what's going to be the next Tesla, what's going to be the next Microsoft. And I'm not suggesting that you might not get that right. But at the same time, what we're really looking for is predictable results over the long run, particularly if you're in that red zone of retirement. So those strategies really haven't changed a lot. The amount of inputs have changed, but the concepts remain the same, and that is by good companies with strong earnings with giant moats around them that can provide predictable results in the long run.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, the strategy that Warren Buffett has used to become uh, one of, if not uh, the world's wealthiest man. We'll talk about that as the show unfolds. Again, we encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity to sit with Josh and the Aptus team to get a free no-obligation consultation, to understand some of the things that you know you might have heard thrown out as a term and you wonder, does that apply to me? Is that something I need to know about? Retirement is something that if you get it wrong – and you arrive at the time to retire, um, there's no comeback from it. So, totally unnecessary to be in that situation. Take advantage of the free consultation at Aptus. My wife and I did. We're now Aptus clients and very happy with what they're doing for us. 614 917 1040, Aptus Wealth, aptuswealth.com. And we have people either working toward retirement, on the cusp of retirement, in retirement. And we break them down into kind of these uh, different uh, labels, of depending on when they were born. Baby boomers, Gen Z, Gen X. Read a stat that just jumped off the page at me that baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, 10,000 per day are retiring? 10,000 per day. How are they doing? Is there a general assessment we can make of how baby boomers, who were kind of the last generation to have something that's gone by the wayside, which is the long-term work for one company, have a company pension plus Social Security equals a comfortable retirement. And that's had some byproducts that's come with it because that
2: generation was used to, if I work and do the right things, my company will take care of me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about saving money because my company's got me. I'll have social security, I'll have a pension, and then as long as I have a little bit of ancillary savings, might be a CD or a few shares of stock, I'll be in good shape. Well, you know, the new generations, me being a Gen Xer or even the millennials following or whoever else they're calling after that generation, Gen Z, uh, Gen Alpha, I think is the new one. Mm -hmm. uh, We've never experienced that. So at no point in my life as a Gen Xer did I assume that I was going to have a pension. And we're seeing that reflected in savings rates. So if you look at the average baby boomer, the average baby boomer started saving for retirement at age 35, and their average savings rate has been 8%, whereas Gen Xers started on an average age of 30, and the average savings rate was 10%. Mm. And then millennials, who we all pick on. Yeah, we do pick on them, right. On average, they started at age 24, so more than 10 years sooner than your generation. Sorry, Bruce. No, that's okay. Uh, And their savings rate remains at about 10%. So you would think then that if you start sooner and we know that time is our greatest asset from an investing perspective, and I'm sure we all wouldn't mind being 10 years younger. So time (laughs) is our greatest asset. If we believe that, then we would think that millennials are going to be in really good shape and Gen Xers are going to be in better shape than baby boomers. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those investments are educated and it doesn't necessarily mean that that money is sticky meaning that they're leaving that money forever. It just means that they're saving at that percentage into their 401Ks. But here's a shocking statistic. Well, I have an
1: explanation for why that is. First all right, of go all. ahead. The explanation is I my parents were of the World War II generation. I don't ever recall them ever having a conversation with me about retirement. They talked to me about saving money, having a savings account, building a loan or whatever, like Christmas club. <laughs> you know, people are going, huh, what's a Christmas club? But... <laughs> I don't ever remember them having a conversation about retirement. But because I'm of the last generation, I had a pension, the first job I ever had, then it went away, and they converted it to a 401k. I became more aware of the necessity to save. So my explanation for why those savings rates increase and the number of people in those different uh, age groups save, more of them save, is because more of them are aware because the generation that is quote-unquote raising them Tells them, "Hey, this is something you got to think about." Is that does that make sense? I think it makes sense. I also think we can't ignore that pesky thing—the computer.
2: And you know, my generation—you know, I'm, I'm 45, mm-hmm. and I didn't get email until I was well into college. Yeah, I didn't have a cell phone until I was out of college. And now, darn near every man, woman, and child walking around has more technology in their pocket than you and I encountered in the first decades of our lives totally true right? totally true so you know i think some of it is parental there's yep. no doubt about it but i think some of it is you have the access to information as well and there's no way to get around the fact that you're you get on msn.com or google. Dot, you know yep. any site right now and you click a button you're going to see something about money and we just didn't encounter
1: that well and true i mean i notice i i usually pull up my google news feed every day just to see what's going on and there's an, people hear the word algorithm and algorithm is basically like they're tailoring what you see according to what you've seen before that indicate what you're interested in. And I have uh, bookmarked things as they come up regarding saving money retirement because I want to be able to converse with you about it here on the show. So they're feeding me more of it. So the more I engage with it, the more I get of it, and the more informed I hopefully become about it. Before we talk about, like, getting back to this study that talked about the savings rates according to age groups and how much more they're saving – Why did pensions go away? I know it became expensive for companies to have pensions. Was that a function of the of the taxes of the having to fund them? Was that a function of lack of worker, quote unquote, loyalty, the mobility of people moving from one job to another? What made pensions no longer make sense for companies? Well, let's first define what is a pension and how would somebody
2: manage that? So a pension simply states that if you stay with me for X number of years, typically I will pay you a percentage of whatever your salary was. Right? So, yep. for example, if you're a teacher right now and you work for 30 years as a teacher, we will pay you X percent of your final three years of salary, your average salary, or whatever it might be, for the remainder of your life. Well, what has happened over the last 75 to 100 years? People are living a whole heck of a lot longer. indeed. And then let's think about... uh um, let's think about, uh, as we think about like, what else has changed interest rates over that time period plummeted. So in the, in the, in the past, um, interest rates were, you know, think of the eighties, right? If we were in the eighties, we're looking at a client and they're looking at a, an employee and saying, we have 40 years to generate enough money to provide income for them for the rest of their life. So we need to have a million dollars in an account, which means we need to save X for them, but we're averaging a 14% guaranteed rate of return the whole way, and they're only living, if they retire at 65, they're going to be dead in 10 years on average. Well, now fast forward, and we hit the 1990s, 2000s, we can't get 14% anymore, we can get four, and people aren't living for 10 years, they're living for 25. Well... We just can't afford to do it anymore. Now insert labor unions that are saying, under no circumstances are we willing to bend at all. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, if you look at GM, you look at a whole lot of different companies. What's really crippled them? Why do they go offshore? And bear in mind, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I'm well aware of labor unions. You know, half my, my friends' parents work for a labor union. But it becomes an issue.
1: Yeah, it does become an issue because the number one, I mean, I was in a union uh, in my newspaper career in cleveland and the number one uh caveat as in labor negotiations is you never give away anything that you had before you're always asking for more so that's a good explanation of why pensions might have gone away now let's get into some of those nuances of the statistic that you were throwing out earlier about the way that uh gen z gen x baby boomers save in the amount of money that they save anything troubling in there that jumped off the page at you yeah you know as we look at the future and People are constantly saying, well,
2: you know, we're doomed, right? And I think that's a byproduct a little bit of as we get older, we automatically fear for the next generation behind us. So I hear this a lot at the office. I started looking through what are the real statistics, and I came across those baby boomer versus Gen X versus millennial savings rates. I said, well, this is good news Mm -hmm. because we're heading in the right direction. But then I came across this study that was in the USA Today, and it says uh, it was a study called cashing out retirement savings at job separation. So the researchers evaluated the withdrawal patterns of more than 162,000 workers across 28 retirement plans from 2014 to 2016.
1: All right, that should be a pretty representative sample.
2: Pretty good. And this is what they found, that 41% of people when they leave an employer cash out their 401k. <laughs> what? They don't roll it over. They don't and bear in mind when you cash out a 401k and you're under the age of 59 and a half, not only are you paying taxes, you're paying a 10% penalty to yeah. do so. So then, you know, I start, my mind starts rolling here and I go, well, that's not a good idea. Well, particularly because of the transient workforce, people don't stay with an employer the whole time. So, okay, so millennials are saving really rapidly, but then they're just cashing all the money out after they leave an employer. Well, as long as they don't leave employers very often, that should be okay. The average American worker holds over 12 jobs during their lifetime. Yeah. So yeah. that doesn't really point us in a good direction. And then I said, well, okay, well, th- maybe that's not all that it says. Let's look at some other stats. Okay, so the median, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about the average retirement plan balance. Mm-hmm. And the average was something like 100, and I can't remember what it was, but it was, yeah, that was like 000.
1: 165 or somewhere in there. Which
2: seems pretty promising. It doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound bad. But you know, it's when, I, when you say the word average, there's a difference between the average or the mean mm-hmm. and the median. Yes. The median is if you add everybody up and let's say there's 100 people and you pick number 49, number 50, and number 51, right? Yep. That's, that's the median. The mean or the average is just adding everybody up and dividing, dividing by, by your total 100, number. which, you know, the old joke is, well, if, if Warren Buffett walks into a bar, the average income just went through the
1: roof. It went way up. The average right. income. Yeah. The billionaire, the guy with 100 billion. But the median didn't change at no, all. No,
2: it didn't. <laughs> so what's the median 401k balance? It's just over 27,000 as of 2022
1: that they're cashing.
2: So that's in. the total balance that everybody has in 401ks, oh, wow. which is very, very low That is low, but they're cashing it in one in three workers has less than 10 grand in a 401k. So then I started thinking, well, maybe what if employers, because you hear the other you know, anecdotal evidence that it's because employers are so greedy, they're greedy. They're not, they're not offering good enough things in the 401k, but what about the companies that offer a match. It's so a free money. You put in 5%, we match 5%. Yeah. Most of those companies have vesting schedules as well. So that would lend to you staying with a company longer. Mm-hmm. But I thought well if if you're getting a match, would you be less inclined to cash out, particularly in light of the fact that there might be a vesting schedule? And unfortunately, the stats actually point to the opposite. People have a larger propensity to cash out when their employer has matched, because they're, and this is the answer on the on the uh, the survey, they feel justified because it's free money that they didn't actually save themselves, so it's found money. So if you wow. give them the money, they're more inclined to take it out. To take it out and spend it, because not what's roll a, it over.
1: what's a penalty on money that I didn't even put in there? Yeah, yeah. So I, I can see, I don't agree at all with the perspective, but I can see the perspective that, okay, I've got 50 grand in my 401k, but I only put in 25. The company put in 25. They're going to ding me a 10% penalty or whatever. I still get every dollar I saved, and the money they're taxing me is not really my money. Well, no, it is your money. It's in your name. You could roll it over into another investment vehicle, 401k or whatever. It is your money. You're just choosing to be foolish with it, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, you go to the casino, and you have 100 bucks. And you're up a hundred. So now you have 200 bucks and you put your hundred that you brought back in your pocket and you go, well, I'm going to be really crazy with this hundred because it's not even my money. Yeah. Well, it is if you just walk away right now. Just walk away. It is. Yeah. Right. So that's, and that's why nobody, you know, very rarely makes money at a casino. So, you know, I think the takeaway of this is not to just talk about how abysmal people are at saving money. It's that the middle of the road mediocrity is not going to get you where you want to go. A lack of discipline and a lack of education,
1: in my opinion, is what causes this. A lack of education. Definitely a lack of education. Do you think, I was going to ask you, this This 41% cash in, you said. They cash out. According they to the survey. They take it, they cash it out. They've all been, when you leave a job, They, I assume there's some kind of a federal law that they have to tell you, you have X number of days to put this in another similar kind of investment vehicle to avoid a tax penalty. Isn't that, I assume that's a requirement. Absolutely. And in
2: some instances you could just leave it where it sits. So, you know, this kind of brings me back to another uh, interesting interview with the Harvard, Harvard endowment study where they asked the Harvard endowment, everybody tries to kind of mimic the Harvard endowment because they're, you know, shocking, pretty smart people over there. Very
1: good, yes, very large.
2: And largest endowment, and their performance is usually very, very strong versus the S&P 500. So they asked the Harvard Endowment, the head of the Harvard Endowment, what advice could you give the average investor? And they had to sound a little bit hoity-toity and fancy, so they said benign neglect, which just basically means if you could just get them to stop doing things, they'd be way better off. Leave your hands off it. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody just leave one employer, go to the next, and never touch their 401ks and end up with 12 of them. There is some logic to aggregation, but what I am suggesting is that education is the only thing that's going to prevent you from doing something really stupid. If you didn't know that gravity was a thing, you might jump off the cliff. Well, I know that seems like a very extreme example, but in my world, simply cashing out your 401k for no apparent reason other than I'm leaving my employer and I'd rather have a new... new new shoes, whatever, yeah, is the equivalent from a retirement perspective of jumping off the cliff. Now, I understand life happens, but time is your greatest asset. And every time you cash out one of those, you're setting the clock back, not two or three years. You're setting the clock back potentially decades. Yes,
1: absolutely right. It's the money that you would have at the end if you left that money in to work for you. And these are the kinds of things. That Josh and his team can certainly help you understand. And that's part of what you learn when you set your free no obligation consultation. 614-917-1040, 614-917-1040 to meet with the Aptus team. You can set up your appointment online at Aptuswealth, APTUS, AptusWealth.com. Do you have a guess as to what you think? And it is purely a guess. Do people cash these out because of ignorance to the consequences? Because, uh, hey, here's a big pile of money and I can go get a new car or something like I'm just I know you're you're more informed on this than I would be because you interact with people and probably have talked some people out of doing that. But what do you make? Not that you can make sense of a bad decision, but how would you explain that? That percentage is so high. Forty one percent of people leaving cash out their
2: 401k. Yeah, You're absolutely right. Uh, this is certainly anecdotal evidence of just conversations that I've had throughout the years. But I would suggest in a younger generation, most people say, well, it's only five grand. Who cares? I'd rather go on a vacation than have five grand. I mean, when I start making more money, I'll start yeah. saving. When in reality, cashing out five grand today, fast forward, we've already done these numbers. Mm-hmm. We're talking about hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars in retirement. Um, if you cash out five grand and it takes you another 10 years to get back to five grand, you're actually going to need more than 10 and 10 years to equate to the same five because you know time is on your side. I see a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, you know, over the years, we've set our lifestyle higher than we should have. And we also watch our children, particularly, you know, people with adult children, they set Mm -hmm. their lifestyles too high. And parents with grown children feel guilty that their kids are struggling. So they will take money out of their own accounts to help fund their children or they've enabled their children so much to think that they're always their children's backstop so their children will take money out. Now, my hope is – those are all the bad reasons. Yeah. My hope is that maybe during this study period um, and maybe you know even as we're moving forward today, a lot of people are taking money out of their 401Ks. And there is evidence to support this. They're taking money out of their 401Ks to be able to help buy down the price of a house because of the rise in interest rates. So we could argue whether or not that's a good or bad idea. But I think, you know, to my point, as we look at all the choices, they also in a, in a Bloomberg study, they interviewed a bunch of baby boomers who are still employed in saving for retirement. And they've said 17 percent of them said they've decreased their contributions or stopped their contributions to retirement accounts because of inflation. So I think there's a lot of. Uh, parts and pieces working towards this, but the takeaway is education and discipline for sure.
1: Yeah, and that's what you get when you have a fiduciary. And if you don't know what a fiduciary is, a fiduciary is a very um, simple concept to understand. Would you like to have an investment advisor who is legally obligated, legally obligated by law to do what is best for you? And the answer, of course, is yes. Well, Josh and the Aptus team are fiduciaries. That's the kind of an investment advisor you should look for. They're located in Lewis Center, just off Route 750. It'll take you a couple minutes to get there from 270 and 23. You don't have to even get there physically in terms of wanting to be a client. Uh, They'd like to meet with you in person to have your consultation, get to know each other, but they do service clients outside the area. 614-917-1040 to set up your consultation. You can also make your appointment online at AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. We'll re-air it tomorrow, Saturday at noon. It originally airs, like you're hearing it now, 7 p.m. Friday night. And Josh joins me every Monday on 989 The Answer for the Bruce Hooley Show Money Monday segment. That airs at 12.35 p.m. every Monday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more on the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Thanks for joining us with the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management, and we will discuss retirement, retirement planning, financial planning, growing your investments. It's not enough to save. You also have to invest, take advantage of what time can do for you when you have prudent investments. That's what they specialize in at Aptus, getting you into the right vehicles. That is the result of a conversation that you have with them, and maybe it starts as did my wife and my relationship with Aptus via the no-obligation consultation. Set yours up by calling their office 614-917-1040 and making your appointment for that no-obligation consultation. Or you can go to their website, which is aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com, and make your appointment that way. They're easy to find in Lewis Center, just off Route 750, which is not far from 23 and 270. And Josh, as we think about retirement, and everybody is hopefully progressing toward that, Regardless of where they are in their career, uh, how much, if at all, should net worth be a uh, tandem conversation or a tandem number that people look at as it concerns what their retirement balance is? Or are there any tells in what the net worth of someone is as it relates to how they've prioritized their retirement plan? in conjunction with what their net worth might be?
2: Net worth is a great measure, like there is a lot of great measures in finance. Um, You know, obviously, if you're worth $100 million, it's a lot better than being worth $1 million, for the purposes of money, at least. Um, So I'm not, you know, negating the value of looking at net worth. However, I think that maybe we've become a little bit too focused on it. For example, I, I can't tell you how many times on a monthly basis I'll have somebody come in who's a, You know, retired police officer or a retired teacher that has a very significant pension. You know, they're getting five, six, seven thousand dollars a month off of a pension, and they'll come in and say, Well, I'm not rich like the rest of your clients, I only have an extra two hundred thousand dollars saved. Hmm. Well, the value of that pension, if we're going to put that in a present value calculation, is very, very, very valuable. I mean, that's more, that's worth more than a million dollars. Sure. So, you know, sometimes net worths can be very misleading. Similarly, if you have a net worth that is a hundred percent in a Roth IRA, that is a significantly different net worth than having a hundred percent of it in a four oh one K or a traditional IRA just because of the taxation. Um so, you know, I think it's important not to get so distracted with net worth that we don't remember that we live off of cash flow, not off of our balance sheet. Um, that said, uh, you know, in the previous segment we were talking about, you know, the savings habits of millennials versus baby boomers versus Gen Zers, et cetera. And it looked like the information was encouraging that as the generations have gone on, the savings rates have both gotten higher and the age at which people start saving has gotten lower. But conversely, the problem is it seems like as we move jobs, we kind of make some foolish decisions and cash out our 401ks. Well, I wanted to echo that a little bit in net worth in that if you take that same study and then you extrapolate that over, what are the net worths of those same generations? So if you say, if Gen Zers are saving money at a rapid rate, mm-hmm. well, then it would stand to reason that their net worth would be pretty significant, or at least positive, hopefully, shy of maybe student loans, yeah. for example, yeah. which obviously have gotten pretty exorbitant over the years. But the reality is, although Gen Zers are saving at an exponentially higher rate, 41% of them still say they have a negative net worth. 38% of millennials have a negative net worth. And people age, over age 59, 21% of them have a negative net worth. So, what that tells me is, and this should be no shock to anybody listening to the show, is that the polarity in our savings universe is about as strong as the polarity of in our political universe mm-hmm, today.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And what you choose to do with your money today will make a dramatic difference on what you can do later on. So if there's anything that I can implore people to do, it's start early, stay consistent, don't come up with excuses, and come up with a logical plan for savings. And then that obviously begs the question, what am I supposed to do with it? I'm not saving, I'm investing, and where do I invest?
1: Yeah, and that's what uh, obviously uh, they specialize in at Aptis, is putting you in the right vehicle depending on where you are. And if you're 35 years away from retirement – uh, the most prudent vehicle for you is going to be a lot different than somebody who is 65 years old and has been saving, has been investing, rather, and has a nest egg that they're more, you know, still trying to grow, of course, but, uh, but also to protect, which is not as much of a concern when you're younger. And they can talk you through and help you understand all these concepts at Aptus. Set up your consultation, as my wife and I did, six one four nine one seven ten forty. Maybe you'll become Aptus clients, as my wife and I did. You can also make your appointment online at Aptus AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S. AptisWealth.com. Here's a number that uh, I noticed this week. 36% of millionaires say it will, quote, take a miracle to retire amid rising costs and a shaky market. Now, I don't know if millionaires means a million in the bank or million, millionaires means a million in net worth, which is not it's not unattainable now for a lot of what would appear to be, quote-unquote, average income people because of houses and real estate appreciation and all those kinds of things. But you were talking about negative net worth, and we're in a climate now where our federal debt is increasing. I saw this week that credit card debt is over a trillion for the first time ever. You just outlined that the way to arrive at financial independence later in life is to be basically disciplined, have a plan, execute the plan, and save money. As you observe in your role as a fiduciary, somebody who's legally obligated to help people reach financial independence with the amount of money that they can invest, do you see a real doomsday scenario out there on the horizon as we continue both individually, credit card debt, and collectively, our government, piling up what appear to be these astronomical debt numbers that we don't really seem to have much serious concentration on fixing.
2: Uh, do I see a doomsday scenario? Well, it depends on what you define as doomsday. Uh, do maybe I, see I a, overstated
1: that, yeah. but I mean, I just wonder, like, as you observe that, um, maybe a better way to say it would be, how sustainable is that to continue down these roads?
2: You know, let me give you an example on what I think is going to change. So my, my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a, uh, was an HVAC guy. Mm -hmm. My mom, my grandmother actually worked in a prison. Um, they both had pensions and they made some foolish decisions. And and I wouldn't say that they're, they're past now. So I guess I can, I can say it now, but they, they cashed out their pensions to buy a business that was a foolish business that went under. So they were left with living purely off of a very modest social security. But off of that modest social security, they were able to own a car. They had an apartment. You know, it was an apartment in a reasonably safe area of town. Uh, They were able to provide for themselves food, health care, all the things. The scenario that I see is the polarity or the dispersion of wealth between the haves and the have-nots is going to continue to grow. And unfortunately, in today's world, and I, I... feel somewhat like I'm speaking like an elitist when I say this, and I don't mean that by any means. But unfortunately, in this world today, if your plan is living exclusively off Social Security when you retire for the rest of your life and you do not own your home in cash, you are rolling the dice. I'm not sure as we fast forward. I don't think this is a doomsday scenario. I think this is just an inherent scenario. As we move forward, I don't believe that you will be able to maintain a reasonable standard of living Purely off of that. Now, if you've been making a hundred and some thousand dollars a year and your social security, you wait until you're 70, and your social security is going to be $3,500, $400,000 or $4,000 a month, then that's one scenario. Mm-hmm. But the average social security in the United States is in the one thousands, not in the three thousands. So if you think a combined income between two people, somewhere around $2,500, you know, our office, you go right down the road from our office, you'll be hard pressed to find an apartment that doesn't cost you twelve to sixteen hundred dollars a month. Yeah. So that's a lion's share of your budget right out of the gate. So I, I think that disparity is going to continue to grow. Now how do you get on the right side of that? Well, you keep saving disciplinedly. You don't participate in a really stupid investment strategy where you only make two, three, four percent, which is called saving rather than investing. When times get rough, you save more. You don't save less. You don't pull out and make, you know, really irrational decisions. And you don't exorbitantly spend and spend more than you make. So you get buried and trapped in that credit trap. If you can do those things, then the American dream is still very alive. The problem is your company used to be able to protect you against it. And now it's on you.
1: Yeah. And as you say that, you know, um, we talked about some things that have led some bad habits that have led to either bad outcomes or potentially bad outcomes. And I'm looking at a story here, a study from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, which says that many parents who are empty nesters do not keep up with their retirement savings goals after their children leave home. Now, that just makes no sense to me. Like, after your kids leave home, you would, I would think, theoretically, have more money there to save. But... Of course, there are things that can intrude, like maybe you're helping your kids with college. And you've outlined this to me, that more and more people are assisting their quote-unquote independent children after they've left home and started life on their own because maybe mom and dad feel a burden to help that child continue the lifestyle that they grew accustomed to when they were living at home. Yeah,
2: sometimes, I mean, when we think of living on their own or being independent, we're not talking about 18, 20, or even 25. We're talking about 30, 40, and 50-year-old kids. And, you know, I think sometimes we have uh, a propensity to do that because we feel like, well, you know, our lives are very good. Our, our needs are met. And we're watching our children struggle, so we better help them. And it's not my job to tell you not to. Uh, but at the same time, it is my job to tell you when you're doing it at the peril of your own security. And that's where it gets rough. Listen, if you have an extra $2,000 a month in your retirement budget, you spend it any way you want. If that's on your kids, fire away. I have no problem with that. We could talk about whether or not that's going to help your kids in the long run, but that's a different conversation. But if you're spending your last 20000 bucks in your retirement account on your kids and you're going to need a new car in the next five years, that's maybe not a financially sound move. Mm. And unfortunately, I see that a lot. Um, And you had mentioned earlier, and I don't think I answered the question, You know, people saying I have a million bucks and I don't know if I'll ever be able to retire. That's just simply reflective of what is your monthly required income need. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I oftentimes see, and, and I think we're all susceptible to believing this, you see the Mercedes, you see the country club membership, you see all the cool stuff, and you go, wow, that person's really got it all figured out. And then you ask them, how much money do they have? And they, oh, I got $2 million. And you go, wow, they, they really, they're good. What you don't know is they, their job pays them $750,000 a year, and they're living on $750,000 mm-hmm. a year. Well, I'm not really good at math, but $2 million divided by $750 does not last real long. Nope. So they're in worse shape in many instances than people that have a half million dollars that are only living on four or $5,000 a month.
1: So you mentioned right there monthly expenses. Uh, as people contemplate retirement and kind of envision what that could look like, I think, at least me, uh, I've thought more about what's that nest egg number that I need to get to to be comfortable. Is it a more prudent way for people to think about retirement, dividing it down to what are my monthly needs going to be, and then what are the variables that could affect that monthly number up or down.
2: Yeah, the easiest way to do this is we're all living on what we make today. So I know that we we tend to get wrapped up in our gross income. You know, I make $120,000 a year. Okay, so I need ten dollars a month. Oh, what are you bringing home every two mm-hmm. weeks? And then it's almost depressing, right? Well, 3200 bucks yeah, a month. Yeah. So the real number is what are you living on today? And of that, are you spending all of it? Or are you saving some of it? And that gives us a very good gauge rather than coming in and saying, I've, I've added up all my expenses and I need exactly this dollar amount. I don't know about you, but there's plenty of stuff in my monthly budget that I don't even know where the money goes. It just is what it is. You yep. know, you you bought a raffle ticket. You, there, there's just a whole bunch of extra money you forget about. So what are you living on today? Now, once you know that number, then it's very easy to extrapolate that number and say, well, all right, let's take out. We're going to have Social Security. We're going to have maybe a pension, hopefully. We have a little bit of rental income. What is the shortfall that we still have outstanding? And then if I future forecast that out and say, how much money do I need starting today to generate that amount of money for the rest of my life, stress test for inflation and taxes and all that stuff, that's the easiest way to do it. And then, obviously, how much risk are you comfortable taking or how much volatility is a better way to explain
1: it. And these are all topics that will come up when you sit for your free consultation with Josh and the Aptus Wealth Management Team. And you can set up that free consultation. There's no obligation at all by calling their office and making your appointment. Their number is 614-917-1040, 614-917-1040. Their web address, and you can make your appointment online their web address is aptuswealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. And as I think about retirement now, I mean, I look, it's great. You start early. You're disciplined in your approach, put a certain amount of money away every month. And the people who have done that, and I think it's probably a dwindling uh, number, usually arrive at a pretty good situation if they've made prudent investments. But in terms of what is prudent in what is optimum, I would think that has changed a lot since maybe a guy who people hold up as the uh, perfect example of doing it the right way, Warren Buffett. He started early. He invests in big companies. He's built this incredible nest egg. Everybody envies Warren Buffett, and they want to take advice from Warren Buffett. Well, I'm going to just guess, tell me if I'm wrong, but there are a lot of different ways to invest now than there were when Warren Buffett started buying big companies in the 1940s. How much? um, No, that's not how I want to ask it. Just how many options or or what what is the evaluation process of options that people now might want to consider rather than saying, well, Warren Buffett's worth one hundred billion dollars and he did this. And so I'm going to do that and it'll work out for me.
2: Yeah, Warren Buffett's, I mean, it's an interesting story. Uh You know, he had started investing in stocks when he was in his teenage years back in, I think, what, the 40s or 50s? Yeah, 1941,
1: he bought his first stock.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, y- you look at that and you think, you want to talk about having time on your side. One, he's 90 years old, so not all of us are going to live that long. Right. So he's had a tremendous amount of time. Um uh, and this isn't to say that Warren Buffett isn't one of the most intelligent investors of all time, because he certainly is. And without saying Warren Buffett, you can't say Charlie Munger, which is his right-hand man, who's also incredibly intelligent. But when they first started that company, they were essentially investing in penny stocks. Nobody really talks about that. And, and it wasn't called penny stocks at the time, but they were buying very small, undervalued companies. And he was able to identify the disparity between the value of the company and what it was trading at. Well, in the 40s, remove computers. Mm-hmm you could find some pretty significant disparities in companies' valuations versus what they were trading at because there wasn't that much information. So if you were willing to nerd out and dive into, into balance sheets and company reports and annual reports, you could find those disparities. That's how Warren started his business. Now, fast forward to today, much more difficult to identify huge variations between valuation and stock price because there's a million different analysts that are looking at every stock known to man under the – you could pick any stock under the sun, and we could pull a full report in the next five minutes off yep. of it. So that approach is different. On top of that, Warren wanted to scale, and we wanted to scale. He realized that you can't scale buying and selling small amounts of shares of penny stocks. So he started essentially the first investment limited partnership. There's huge tax advantages to doing that, which is why Berkshire Hathaway is a very tax-efficient way to invest. And he decided that the easiest way to do this, to find those disparities, is let's just buy the whole darn company. Because if you go in, and it's no different than if, if I walk into a, a carpet store and I say, how much is it per yard? Yeah, well, it's X dollars per yard. Mm-hmm. How about I buy your whole warehouse? I bet you get a better price. Yeah, you right? would. You certainly would. So he just started buying whole companies. Now, for the average investor, is that possible? Very, very difficult. But Warren's also been noted in saying now that they're so big, their ability to employ to deploy capital is very difficult because there's only so many companies they can buy with the amount of money that they have in in stock, which is why they're saying you might be better off buying other companies other than Berkshire today because we have so much cash that's just the anchor behind the boat.
1: Yeah, I mean, he certainly has uh, provided a template for people to follow, but uh, you know, I don't know if there were annuities and treasuries and all these different things. And you point out a good uh, a good fact that access to information now makes the sort of smorgasbord of options out there readily accessible to people. And that's what—that's why people have someone like you doing what you do, is because you can make them aware of all these different things, of what the rates of return are, uh, whether there's a guaranteed rate of return, whether it's a variable rate of return. And the thing that I learned when sitting with you for the consultation that led to my wife and I becoming clients is that you don't have to go, quote, unquote, all in on, say, the stock market. You can buy a vehicle that will get you a protected return and protect you from maximum losses in the market, which speaks to me to the nuances of the investment vehicles that are out there rather than I'm going to try to find a company that's undervalued, its assets are worth more than what its stock price is, And I'm going to try to duplicate what Warren Buffett has done to become the next Warren Buffett.
2: Yeah, you know, Warren Buffett says today that the best way to invest would be simply just buying shares of the S&P 500. Um, And the belief there is markets are efficient. The S&P 500 inherently is going to buy the best 500 companies, arguably, in the United States. So that's going to be very, very difficult to beat. Fair argument. However, uh, he also simultaneously says not everybody should be invested in the stock market. Because he has a very, he's admitted this many times, he has a very particular brain wiring that allows him to ignore losses entirely and allows him to pragmatically pick investments and just stay the course. He believes
1: in his philosophy, and so he practices that term that you threw out earlier, that fancy Harvard term, benign neglect, which is basically, I believe in what I'm doing, I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to let, short-term or even long-term losses, move me off that. I'm going to stick with my strategy because I know it's a sound strategy. And you've discussed many times, the people who try to time the market are the people who react to a high, oh, man, it's going sky high, i got to get in, or the people who react to a low, wow, look at the market, it's way down, i got to get out. Doing that almost always portends that you will cost yourself more money than if you had just ridden out the volatility.
2: Almost always. I can't think of a scenario where it doesn't, and you can look up statistics very readily available to to prove that. You know, the one thing that buying the index does not do is you had mentioned, you know, there's a bunch of different options out there. And to assume that everybody's plan should be the same would be to assume that everybody's the same. And I don't know if you have friends, uh, lots of friends, they're all different and they all have different ideologies, different beliefs on... Marriage, religion, yeah. investing, the name, it goes on and on. I have an example that's something that's very prominent right now um, that will probably be of value to a lot of the listeners of your show, and that is this very large contingency of folks that are now wanting to put their money where their mouth is in relation to their political or religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. You can call it biblical responsible, biblically responsible investing, called a bunch of different things, or something that we hear oftentimes now is, I don't want to be involved in this ESG thing. Yeah. So get me out of that way. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you can't do just investing in the S&P 500 is cater which stocks you own based upon any of those beliefs. What you can't do in the S&P 500 is hedge your position to know if the market drops 30% that I only go down five. Now, by doing that, are you obviously reducing your amount of return potential? Of course. Anytime you want you want to limit the downside, you're limiting some of the upside. But if that's what you want to do, that doesn't mean it's any worse than anybody else. It's our job to show you how to most efficiently do that, which is why we're building portfolios for publicly responsible investing as we speak.
1: Yeah, and it's also a thing where, you know, the one thing that you need to know about Aptis is that because they're fiduciaries legally obligated to do what's best for every client, Clients always are at different points on the continuum of saving for retirement. And that consultation allows them to get to know you, what you want to prioritize as an investor. And also, they don't have one way. Like it's, you know, Warren Buffett is a and p 500 guy. Okay, it's fine. But there are a lot of different vehicles out there. And if you go to Aptis, it's not going to be like all we do are annuities, all we do are treasuries, all we do are bonds, all we do are stocks. That's not the way it is. So sit for the consultation. Get to know Josh and his team. They will come up with a plan that is tailored to you, and then you can determine if that is the way that you want to proceed. My wife and I have done that. We are very, very, very satisfied. Get to know Josh and the Aptus team by calling and setting up your consultation. 614-917-1040 is their number. Aptuswealth.com is their website. That's spelled A-P-T-U-S, Aptuswealth.com. Join Josh and me Monday, twelve thirty five p.m., for the Money Monday segment on The Answer. And Josh will be back for another Aptos Retirement Blueprint radio show next week, Friday at 7, Saturday at noon. Thanks, Josh. Thank you.
0: The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program.